Well, this evening we look to the summary of God's Word that we find in Lord's Day 25 of our Catechism. You can see that on page 32 in the back of your songbook. But before we look to that, I'd like to read with you from 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, beginning at verse 18 of chapter 1, moving to verse 5 of chapter 2. This is Paul's introduction. Remember, he's writing to the church in Corinth. This is a church that has a lot of problems. They have drifted into worldliness or perhaps have just not rid themselves of worldliness after coming to Christ in many ways. And he's going to address a lot of the questions they have, a number of the dysfunctions in their midst. But he's going to begin by reminding them where they stand. They don't stand on the wisdom of men. They haven't been drawn by the ingenuity of men. It is God who has called them in His unique way with His unique message, and that gives them a unique identity. And that's what we see in this passage, beginning in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 1. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh shall glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Amen. Amen. That, brothers and sisters, that is where we stand. Now, Lord's Day 25, coming on the heels of these portions of the catechism that talk not just about what we believe, but why we believe it, what that means for us, that faith to which we're called. It asks us, you confess that by faith alone you share in Christ and his blessings. Where does that faith come from? And the answer is the Holy Spirit produces it in our hearts. 
by the preaching of the Holy Gospel. And he confirms it through our use of the Holy Sacraments. Well, this introduces a new subject. So the question is, what then are Holy Sacraments? Sacraments are holy signs and seals for us to see. They were instituted by God so that by our use of them, He might make us understand more clearly the promise of the gospel and might put His seal upon that promise. And this is God's gospel promise, to forgive our sins and give us eternal life by grace alone because of Christ's one sacrifice finished on the cross. Are both the Word and the sacraments then intended to focus our faith on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as the only ground of our salvation? Right. In the gospel, the Holy Spirit teaches us, and through the holy sacraments, He assures us that our entire salvation rests on Christ's one sacrifice for us on the cross. How many sacraments did Christ institute in the New Testament? Two. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And Lord willing, in the coming weeks, we will take our time to consider those two sacraments, each of them separately, in a number of different perspectives. <coughs> Beloved family of God in Christ, most of you know by this time that the church in which I grew up was not in any way reformed. And sometimes I've used my experiences in that non-reformed church as illustrations. Now, I don't do that to denigrate the church in which I was raised, but simply as an illustration so that we realize the treasure we've been given. In the course of that, I may have mentioned, I'm not sure, the weakness of the preaching in that congregation. It was not at all unique. That was fairly common, I think, to the churches with which it was affiliated. Most of the sermons were rather moralistic. The minister would tell stories that were vaguely related to the scripture reading for the day, and he would use those stories to talk about how we should behave, how we should act, occasionally how we should trust the Lord, but, but mainly about how we should be gentle or loving or helpful. These sermons didn't arise from scriptural exegesis. That's what blew me away when I, when I heard the preaching at Geneva College. That someone was actually taking God's word and opening it up. That's rather rare among the churches of America today, unfortunately. But unfortunately, when we're not digging into what the word of God actually says then we're dealing with merely the word of man. And the word of man does not bring out, breathe out life unto those who are dying. And likewise, the sacraments. I, the church I grew up in was Methodist. I just mentioned that because that's kind of how we spoke. You know what? Methodists were a singing people. Methodists baptized their babies. Methodists, well, why do they do that? Well, because they do, right? That was, that was the explanation. Well, because we do that. But there wasn't a lot of thought given to why we do it. And brothers and sisters, I mention that, again, not to denigrate the church in which I grew up, but because that's our default. We default 
to tradition. We do it because we do it and we don't like to change because we like the way things are going. But we don't think about why we're doing what we're doing and if we don't understand why we're doing what we're doing, we can miss the power of what God has given to us. We can miss the joy that we should have because of the gift he has bestowed. If the things that we do in worship are merely traditions, we will scorn them and we will be free to change them however we wish. If there are better ways to do things, we're free to do so and really maybe we're obligated to in order to do our best before the Lord. But when the things we do in church are merely tradition, then the focus, the focus is always on me. The focus is on my desires, my experience, my wants. The focus is on man. And that becomes our identity. That becomes our comfort. But folks, there is no comfort in man. We're too broken. We're too unreliable. We're too weak. And so instead of the traditions of man, God has so graciously given us means of grace. When we gather together, we gather together not merely for one another's company, as good as that is, not merely for good coffee, as much as we might enjoy that. We gather together to receive the gifts God has given us in the means of grace, which are elements of our worship which he has ordained to use to draw us to him and to build us up in him. That's what preaching and the sacraments are. And we must understand that if we're to receive them as the gift they were meant to be. And so that's what we consider as we look at Lord's Day 25, that God establishes our faith through these means, these instruments. And those means are preaching and the sacraments. And so we look first at preaching, the means employed by the Spirit to form our faith. Look at the context in our catechism. There's a, a logic to it. We looked at what we confess in the Apostles' Creed, starting in Lord's Day 8, going through Lord's Day 22. And then, and then we ask, how are you right with God? That was kind of a summary, right? How are you right with God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Son of God become man, he is the one who restores us. He paid the debt for our sin. He earned the righteousness and the holiness that allow us to stand before God. And we receive all of those benefits in no other way than by faith alone. And then last week, we were reminded, hey, yeah, we trust in Jesus and nothing we do can add to that. Nothing we do can play a role, any role in our salvation because even the very best we do in this life is stained with sin. Even though we're in fact promised a reward by God, even though God assures us that those grafted into Christ will produce fruits, the reward and the faith are both, or the reward and the, the fruits are both gifts from God. So the question with which Lord's Day 25 begins, we're right with God through faith in Christ by what Christ has done. Nothing we do contributes to it. So the, the essential question, where does this faith come from? How do we get it? Obviously, that's the linchpin. That's the means by which we receive this utterly essential gift from Christ. So where does this faith come from? 
And our catechism answers that preaching is the means employed by the Holy Spirit to form our faith. Now, this is not an instrument that men would choose for bringing folks to the Lord. In fact, we know that simply by looking at what men do choose in seeking to bring folks to God. In our culture today, the acknowledged experts in filling the pews are the the church growth scholars. There's folks like Bill Hybels in Willow Creek Church in in Chicagoland and, and Rick Warren of Saddleback Church out west. There are church growth analysts like George Barna. These are men who make it their business, make their living or have made their living in the case of a couple of them, to figure out how to bring people into the church. And what they tell us is that we need to A, remove barriers and B, meet needs. Removing barriers means we need to make the church, this is what they say, we need to make the church as comfortable as possible for unbelievers. So remove the pews because you don't see those anywhere else. Put in stadium seating that is exceptionally comfortable. Get rid of the organ because that's not a common thing for people. Bring in a band, that's what they want to hear. Bring in acting and skits and things that will entertain them. Allow them to dress casually so that they can feel informal and comfortable and they don't have to go to any trouble. But above all else, they tell us, get rid of theology and the pulpit because folks don't want preaching. Of course, there must be some measure of preaching, so bring the preacher down front, get rid of that bulky pulpit thing, get the minister wandering around among the people, So he's just having a conversation with him. And make sure that you sprinkle into that conversation lots of movies and multimedia clips, perhaps a little acting, some interpretive dance, something to break it up because communication experts tell us people don't want to listen to one guy drone on and on for half an hour. Remove the barriers and meanwhile meet their felt needs. Find out where they're struggling, what they're they're needing, and help them. That might be parenting, finances, self-esteem, careers. Whatever it is they want to learn about, whatever it is they feel weak in, you meet that need. Help them become better parents. Help them to manage their money, whatever they do. But whatever you do, don't drone on about sin. Don't talk about sacrifice. Don't bring them down by telling them what they're doing wrong. You see, it's all salesmanship. None of this is new. The megachurch model might be a new packaging, but none of it is new. The old saying is that where Christ builds a church, Satan erects a chapel. It's a cheap imitation of the truth. But it's always an imitation because Satan doesn't really want us to come to the truth. If you want to see this done well, look look at cable television. There are some incredibly charismatic television preachers out there. Men who look absolutely marvelous in a suit. They fill stadiums with people who just can't wait to hear them speak and to, to see them do amazing things. What they say sounds good. They can sell self-esteem and personal prosperity like no one else. Some of these guys can convince a monk that God wants him to drive a Mercedes. It's all about making people feel good, about selling them something. Now what they're selling varies from man to man, but in each case it's a do-it-yourself theology. If you believe, you can receive. If you simply name it before God, you can claim it. But what they're not selling 
is life. What they're not selling is reconciliation with God. What they're not selling is peace that lasts no matter what your situation or what your circumstance. Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. And those who use the message of the world, the methods of the world, they say, well, let's give it to them. If that's what they want, that's what they're selling as long as we get them in the door. The problem is God commands something different. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And therefore Paul says we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. The Apostle Paul was nothing if not a realist. He understood that preaching is an inherently unimpressive activity. It lacks the entertainment value of a good play. It's not as impressive as healings and miracles. And since it starts with a proclamation of sin, well, it doesn't endear folks to it. In fact, he hints in a number of places, including this passage, that he was not himself an impressive speaker. He says, I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. Paul wasn't flashy. Folks didn't gush over him. In fact, according to Peter, folks tended to say, did you understand him? Because I don't understand what he's saying. He's kind of confusing. So Paul has a realistic expectation that there are many who will reject what he has to say because they're looking for something humanly impressive. But if preaching is so weak and so foolish, and if you're not that good and the world hates you, why do it? Why keep struggling with it? Why devote such time and energy to it? There's not a minister there who doesn't ask that now and then. Usually on a Monday morning when he thinks he did pretty poorly on Sunday. Or when somebody said something to him that was a little less than gentle. And he thinks, why did I bother? Why do I put my time and effort into this? Why keep wasting myself on this foolishness that is preaching? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because God ordained to use this foolishness to form our faith. God has determined to use the preaching of the word to impart faith to his people. We've heard it a number of times from Romans 10. We talked about it in catechism class again this morning. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's his promise. But then Paul asks, how then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? It is by the preaching of God's word that he has ordained to introduce us to Christ, to bring us into the very presence of Christ. Yes, it's a stumbling block to some and it's a foolishness to others, but to those who are called, whether Jew or Greek, it is the power and the wisdom of God. Because by the preaching of the word, God confronts us with our sin. By the preaching of the word, God sets before us Christ crucified. By the preaching of the word, God shows us our absolute insufficiency and his absolute ability. And then through his Holy Spirit, he takes that word and he applies it to soften our hearts, to draw us close to the Lord, to convince us that this is the only way that we can come to life. God does that, not men. 
And in fact, Paul says in this passage we just read that he uses foolish men. He uses men that the world scorns so that there's absolutely no doubt. He didn't do it. It must have been God. And you see, that's the message. God uses the means of preaching to form faith in our hearts, both to impart that faith and to build that faith, because then it's absolutely evident that God is the one who did it. The method itself, from a human perspective, is foolish. The men who do it, from a human perspective, are unimpressive. But the God who uses it is absolutely sovereign over the hearts of his people. And so he's able to use the preaching of the word to draw them close to himself. We're told in 2 Peter 1 verse 3, his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us. His power, the power of God alone, gives us what we need. Not the power of the preacher, not the power of the method, not the power of anything but God himself. But by his power, through the Holy Spirit, by the gospel, he draws us in. We see that in scripture time and again, don't we? You remember the story of Philip? In Acts 8, we're told about how Philip is in Samaria and then God calls him to go and to to meet someone on a road down in Judea. And he goes down there and he finds in southern Judea this Ethiopian eunuch heading back to, he's a servant of Candace, a, a court servant in Ethiopia. He's just been to Jerusalem and he's riding along in his chariot and as Philip runs along beside, he hears him reading out loud from Isaiah 53, the song of the suffering servant. And he yells up and says, do you understand who he's talking about? And he says, no. And so Philip gets up in the chariot with him and he begins to preach, to proclaim the gospel of Christ from Isaiah 53. And the man believes, he comes to faith in Christ. We see the same throughout the book of Acts. Paul comes to Philippi, meets up with some women who are worshiping God down by the river. He begins preaching to them about Christ and soon Lydia a prominent woman in the town, Jewish. She believes. The Holy Spirit works in her heart and she believes. Shortly later, Paul's imprisoned in the jail. The jailer becomes distraught, thinking that everyone has escaped. Paul stops him, says, no, we're here. Preaches the gospel to him. And he and his family believe. In each case, and there are many, many more. The word is present. It is proclaimed to the unbeliever and God uses the preaching of the word to impart the faith that they need to live. Preaching is the means God uses to bring us to faith, to form our faith. But those passages in Acts also show us another means at work. In each case, as, almost as soon as they believe, as soon as they profess Christ, they're baptized. See, God uses the preaching of the word to form our faith, but he uses the sacraments to fortify our faith, and that's our second point, the means intended by the Father to fortify our faith. Ponder that a minute. We, as people, we learn in a variety of different ways. I might pick up a book to learn something new by reading it. In class, our children 
Rather than reading the textbook, they might listen to their teacher lecture them for a while. Smaller children tend to get more creative in their learning. They learn by touch. They learn by tactile feeling. They learn by smell. We go to a restaurant, we might learn about new food by tasting. There are a variety of ways in which we can learn. And a good teacher will use that reality, that truth, in order to modify the way he teaches. Might assign readings, but also some lab work so that you can get a hands-on feeling for that truth. Or a movie might repackage the facts in multimedia that will, will pound it home in a new way. Well, some in the church have recognized that ability to learn diff by different means, and so they, they try to use creative teaching from the pulpit. Well, you see, we don't have the right to do that. Whatever we do in worship, Leviticus 10 shows us God cares deeply about what we do in worship. He cares deeply. Deuteronomy 12 says, You must not adopt the ways of the world, but rather do that and only that which God has commanded. So we can't just transform the sermon into a multimedia extravaganza. We're not free to do that, but what we are free to do is use the means that God has given us, and He has given us the means through the sacraments to employ those other aspects of learning in a way that leads us directly to Him. Again, look back at those examples. Philip preaches to the Ethiopian eunuch. The man believes, and immediately he wants to be baptized. Why? Because that will give him the assurance of what he has believed. And that having been baptized, he goes and he ministers, and tradition tells us that he began, through his testimony, began the church in Ethiopia. Acts 16, Paul preaches and Lydia believes and she and her household are baptized and having been baptized she begins to exercise her faith boldly. The Philippian jailer, he believes and he and his family are baptized that very night and then immediately he begins showing his faith through his service and his joy. That's instructive. God gives us faith through the means of preaching. God strengthens that faith and gives assurance through the sacraments. And thus assured, God's people go forth serving Him. You see, God uses the sacraments to appeal to our senses. We hear through the preaching of the Word. But then baptism demonstrates to us the cleansing of Christ. The Lord's Supper reveals to us in a way that is Beautifully vivid how Christ was broken for us and imparts to us a, a lesson that we can touch and even taste, a lesson that we can smell with our nose as the wine comes past us, as the fresh bread passes before us, a lesson that this is real, that this is what Jesus did and he did it to nourish us unto eternal life. It's a visible lesson that we can touch and taste and feel, but also a seal. A seal is something that gives us assurance. You baptize that child and dad's arm is wet. You can see it drip. You can see the child react immediately as soon as that water hits his head. A little faster if the water's cold. An adult is baptized and you can see them dampened about the shoulders 
And we're shown that's how real, that's how true, that's how honest this cleansing is. With the Lord's Supper, we can touch it, we can taste it, we can feel it, and we know that's how real is this nourishment that God provides. That's how concrete it is. And it assures us, it builds up our faith. And thus built up, thus solidified, we can go forth with confidence, we can go forth with joy, eager to respond to what the Lord has done. But understand, he gives these sacraments with the intention that we use them and grow from them. God gave baptism and the Lord's Supper for a reason. He wants us to be strengthened in our faith. If we don't use them, if we don't partake, we won't grow. And likewise, if we just do it out of tradition, if we just go through the motions. You see, the sacraments, well, preaching too, but the sacraments are active. You can't just go through the motions, you have to look and remember what does this signify? What does that show me? Ponder it. Children, you can do this. Every time there's a baptism, every time there's the Lord's Supper, look at what's happening with the water, with the bread, with the wine, and think about what does that mean? What does that teach me? As the wine and the bread come past you, look at it. See how real it is. And remember, that's how real is the sacrifice that Jesus gave for me. And that's how truly I can trust him. You see, we have, to, we have to actively participate in the sacraments. And as we do, they strengthen us, they build us up, they draw us closer to Christ. Brothers and sisters, when you witness and participate in the sacraments, God does desire to strengthen your faith. So pray that he would give you the strength to do that and then do it with all your heart. Taste that bread. Savor that wine. You can cough a little if you must, but savor its reality, its truth, its tang. And think about what that teaches you about Christ and about your participation in Christ. As you greet that family that just had their child baptized, run your fingers through her silky little hair. Feel how wet it is yet. That's how real are the promises. That's how true is the washing. Now believe, believe and trust him who gave you that sign and seal. And as you do, as you employ this means intended by the Father to fortify our faith, as you receive this means employed by the Spirit to form our faith, recognize too that these are means that emphasize the Son in order to focus our faith. And that's our last point. Both preaching and the sacraments point us to Christ. Now that is an essential difference between the means that God has ordained and the means that are invented by men. That which men invent inevitably points us to men. It turns on the needs, the desires, the comfort, the prosperity of men. They teach us to find assurance in the works of men. And so we turn on the TV preachers and they say, if only you believe, you will be healed. And if you're not healed, then you haven't trusted enough. And you see, my comfort then, my confidence rests in me. If I'm not healed, I must not be strong enough. Something must be wrong with me. 
Or they say, let's bring it. We gotta fill these pews. We've got empty pews. We can't have that. And so they go out and they do a big campaign in town. They're gonna draw people in with a revival. They're gonna have a giveaway to get people in the pews. And when the pews aren't filled, well, it's the preacher's fault. It's the consistory's fault. It's the committee's fault. Or worse, the pews do get filled. But they get filled with people that are looking to people And people will always let you down. People will always leave you wanting. If we get them here, if we draw people in the doors on the basis of what we have done, the promises we have made, we've sold them something we can't deliver on. Answer 67 of our catechism says, in the gospel, The Holy Spirit teaches us, and through the sacraments he assures us that our entire salvation rests on Christ's one sacrifice for us on the cross. Our most desperate need as sons and daughters of Adam is restoration through Christ. And thus, in the sacraments and in the preaching, God presents repeatedly Christ, 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 Christ. The preaching of God's word, if done faithfully, leads us time and again to Christ. It might not always be a message of salvation, do this to be saved. It might be a message about marriage, but that lesson about marriage will show us that it's only through Christ that we can have a good marriage, and that marriage, if it's done faithfully, will show the world the love of Christ. It might be a message that talks about how we're to to live and act as businessmen in the world if that's what the text in Scripture shows us. But if it is what, the, what it shows us, it's going to show us that Christ is the only one who can make us good and faithful businessmen. And that when we do that, people are going to notice that we're different because they're going to see Christ in us. You see, the preaching of the Word always leads us back to Christ. We preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. To the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, Christ the power of God and Christ the wisdom of God. That's why Paul, when he came to Corinth, said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Look at Acts. In every chapter, the kingdom grows and people are delivered. How? By the preaching of Christ. And that's right and proper. For it is Christ Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross which we most need. That's why the only images God has given us for use in the church are the images that point in baptism to the cleansing that Christ gives us and the anointing that that is given to us through Christ and the image that shows us Christ broken on the cross that we might be fed unto life. Those are the images God has given us that we might grow in our understanding and be solidified in our confidence. It all rests upon, revolves around Christ. Brothers and sisters, the world calls it foolishness. This focus on the importance of preaching and the sacraments. But God himself in his word tells us something far different. He says these means that he has given to us are the instruments that he has chosen to bring the life of Jesus Christ to those who are his from all eternity. 
So let us not despise these means that God has given to us, but rather let us rejoice that God has given them. And let us always remember to teach our children and our grandchildren about the importance of trusting in God to establish our faith, to strengthen our faith, and to lead us by means of faith unto him. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, you are so very faithful. And you know exactly, precisely what we need. Grant us that which we need day by day and week by week that we might be built up in the faith that joins us to Christ and that we might be well equipped to tell others, to draw them in, that they too might hear and see and rejoice and live. Father, we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.